This morning we are continuing through the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 8. You can find the passage printed in your bulletin. You can also follow along in your own Bibles if you prefer. Would you please stand? And I will read aloud from God's Word, Revelation chapter 8. This is the Word of Jesus Christ. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, and he filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown upon the earth. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. And I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Would you please be seated, and would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to look at the eighth chapter of this book of Revelation we thank you for this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that was given to him, delivered to John the Apostle, passed to the churches, first in Asia Minor and then to us. We ask this morning as we look at these complicated passages that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we grow in our faith. May we be moved to repentance May your word be proclaimed, may we be sanctified, and may you be glorified, our Lord and our God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask all of this, amen. It's kind of like SeaWorld up here in the front row of the splash zone. I've never baptized six people in the same spot before, so if I slip, you'll have to forgive me. When I was a kid, I was intimately involved with orienteering. 
Orienteering is the exercise of getting from point A to point B with a map and a compass. I thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity and the exercise. It was uh, very uh, stretching for the mind. It was also a communal activity done with other people. And as you got better in orienteering, you were presented with more and more challenging courses, okay? So one time when I was involved with orienteering, we did a nighttime orienteering class. And the challenge to nighttime orienteering is that many of the visual cues that you use for following a map, like a ridge line or a riverbed or a ravine or some topography, you're not able to see those things in the middle of the night. And so nighttime orienteering is simply the use of a map and a compass, and you have to be able to trust both of your tools. If you're off one degree to the left or the right, or if you're 10 paces short or long, you won't end up where you need to go. It was a wonderful exercise. I think some of you kids today could enjoy a little bit of orienteering. But it is also, I think, a good analogy for the process that we're going through the book of Revelation. You see, as we come to each chapter, we take the risk of being lost in the details, of forgetting from where we've come and where we're going. And so each week, we need to get out our map and our compass and reorient ourselves in the book of Revelation, figure out again which way is up and down and which way this book is moving as we proceed through the book. So let me again, at the sake of repeating myself, let me again give you a 30-second version of where we came and where we are going. The book of Revelation begins, and John receives a vision from the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this vision, a door is opened into heaven. And so we said, John is being given a picture of the reality of reality, okay? This is the way that things actually are. And when the door is opened, John sees a number of things, but most notably, he sees the throne of God. And there in the throne room, in the midst of the throne room, is the throne, and the one seated on the throne is the living God. And we said that the throne is an important part of Revelation. It's mentioned some 60 times in this book, and everything that happens in Revelation flows from the throne of God. Now, of all the activity that's happening around the throne, most importantly, we see in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, we see that he is holding a scroll. We began talking about the scroll two weeks ago. It will influence also our conversations this morning. In the right hand of God the Father is a scroll. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth is found worthy to open the scroll. It's sealed on its edge with seven seals. And then in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, appears and he is found worthy to open the scroll. Now, I told you last week and the week before, and I'll continue to remind you, this is the plan for all of history, okay? It includes the redemption of the sons and daughters of God out of darkness into light. It includes the judgment that God is bringing to the earth. It includes everything from the beginning to the end. And this is only accessible, only to be executed by Jesus Christ, the one who is found worthy to open the scroll. So we began looking then at a vision that come, came out of the scroll that was the vision of the seven seals. We talked about that the last two weeks. The seals are broken by Jesus Christ, and we said this is one unfolding of a perspective on all of history. 
And most importantly, as we looked at the seven seals, we said, really, this is a picture of the sanctification of God's people, okay? That God is working through all the trials in history to sanctify for himself a people, to make a people for his own possession. If you want to orient yourselves in the book of Revelation, there are really three main visions that come out of Revelation, and each of those visions is simply a different perspective on history, okay? So we've seen the seven seals. Today we begin talking about the seven trumpets. Seven trumpets are simply another reflection on all of history, and then we will eventually get to the seven bowls. And in between each of those, there's different interludes where we see different things happening, but Largely, these are the contours of the topography of the book of Revelation. Each of these then, having the number seven as a depiction of the perfect plan of God, they are not chronological sequence, rather they are different tellings of the same history. So in the seven seals, we see a perspective of history. In the seven trumpets, we'll see a new perspective of history. In the seven bowls, we'll see a different perspective on history. But each of these is a story that's being, un- being unfolded or told about the perfect plans that God has for all of history. So that brings us to our passage this morning. And you see, each of these stories or retellings is connected with a fine detail, an intimate detail that moves us from one vision to the next. You see that beginning in verse 1 this morning. Because the seventh seal of the last vision is broken, there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and then John's attention is directed to the seven angels who hold the seven trumpets. And so the connection for us is the seventh seal that is broken that moves us now into a new telling of the history of humanity. And that moves us into the passage that we read this morning. And so as we began reading this morning, you saw the introduction in verses 1 through 4 about the seven angels and the seven trumpets which will now consume our attention for the next few weeks. And so we'll talk about the seven angels and the seven trumpets. This morning as we work our way through the seven trumpets, here's what I want to do. I don't want to spend so much time looking at all the fine details and talking about the thirds and the fire and the things that are happening. Rather, I want to start with the big picture, and we will move in the following weeks to talk about more of the details, okay? The big picture is this. In the vision of the seven trumpets, there are three, at least three, Old Testament images that are important for understanding the vision of the angels and the trumpets. That would be the altar, all right, the altar in the temple. That would be Jericho. These are Old Testament images, and that would be the plagues in Egypt. You can see on the outline in your handout, these are the three bullet points. There are four of them, but those are the first three that we will be going through this morning. These three Old Testament images, if we understand these, we actually begin to make sense of Revelation chapter 8. Again, This vision is delivered to an audience that was literate about their Bibles. And when they received the vision, they would have said, oh, of course. These are the the pictures that are being drawn upon. This is the message that's being communicated as we read Revelation chapter 8. So let's begin with the altar. You probably saw it there beginning in verse 3. It says that the angel put incense on the altar. And the incense was burned along with the prayers of the saints. Now listen, this is not the first time that we have seen the altar in this vision in Revelation. If you remember back, we're breaking the seals. We got to the fifth seal, and it said the saints, uh, the souls of those who had been martyred 
were under the altar in heaven crying out, How long, O Lord, how long will you delay? And so there we saw the altar. Now many people, when they read about the altar in Revelation, they stumble over the altar. That's because they wrongly or mistakenly believe that this is the sacrificial altar that sat outside of the temple where sacrifices were done. And they say, why do sacrifices need to be made in heaven? Right? Why are we sacrificing animals in the perfect picture of the holy of holies in heaven? Well, we're not. Okay, that's a mistaken understanding of the altar that's being described. It's very clear from verse 3 that this is the incense altar, right? The angel is burning incense on the altar. This is the incense altar that could be found in the temple. So let me then give you a brief background on the function of the incense altar that helps us to understand this passage. As you know, God designed the temple in Old Testament Israel with vivid and meticulous imagery that would point the people of God to eternal truths, right? So every detail said something about God, right? And so God is giving the design, and you remember the basic design. There are three chambers of the temple. There's the outer part, there is the holy place, and then there is the holy of holies, the Holy of Holies, where no one could go, the chief priest went there once a year, was the Ark of the Covenant. Within it was the two tablets of, of the law that God had given to his people. And there in the Holy of Holies was where it was believed that God met with his people, right? And so they couldn't go in there. They would be struck dead there in the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. There was a veil or a curtain that separated that part of the temple from the holy place. That was kind of the, the second intermediary part of the temple, And in that part, within the holy place, sat a number of things. Most importantly for this morning was the incense altar. It was actually the closest thing to the curtain, i.e. to the holy of holies. There was the incense altar right before the veil, okay? And what would happen is three priests, in the morning and the evening, they would go into the temple. And in the morning and the evening, the people would gather around the temple, the outer court and all around the temple. They would gather for morning and evening prayers And the priest would go in, and one would be carrying the coals, and one would be carrying the incense, and the chief priest would go behind them. They would set the coals on the incense altar, and then the incense beside it, and the chief priest would stand there. The other priest would leave, and at the moment that they all had agreed upon ahead of time, whatever time it was, the chief priest would lay the incense on the altar, and the people all around the temple would be praying, okay? It would be silent within the temple and without, and they'd be praying. And as they were praying... Not only would they smell the incense, but they would see the smoke rising to heaven, and it would serve as a visible picture of the prayers of the people ascending to the throne of God, that he would hear them, and not only would he hear them, but their prayers would be sweet to him, okay? It would be a sweet aroma before the living God. This is the incense altar in the temple. This, uh, I think, makes sense of a lot of different biblical passages. Zechariah in Luke chapter 1 was burning incense at the altar when the angel appeared to him. It says the angel appeared on the right side of the, of the altar, right there in the holy place, okay, in the temple. Uh, it also makes sense of David. David says a number of times, uh, he mentions about his prayers being like incense. Psalm 141, let my prayer be set before you as incense. I believe that's what David had in mind as he's thinking about his prayers as a a visible rising before the throne with this sweet aroma. And so that's what's being described here as we begin looking at the trumpets. There is an incense altar in the heavenly temple of God, but most importantly, I don't know if you noticed, the incense is not simply serving as a picture of the prayers of the people. 
Rather, there is incense there and also the prayers are there. And the prayers are literally being burned on the altar as a fragrant offering to the living God, okay? These are the prayers of the saints, those who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, on the altar raising before the living God, all right? It's a beautiful picture that is being painted as we begin Revelation chapter 8. But let me tell you something else that's important for our understanding of the altar in Revelation chapter 8. The altar in the temple served another purpose, and that is one that's going to be brought out in this chapter, okay? When the Israelites went out to capture and destroy cities and groups of people by the command of the Lord, he tells us in Deuteronomy 13, he tells the people, you are to gather all of their belongings, and you are to take coals from the altar in the temple or in the tabernacle, and you're to take those coals and you're to set those belongings afire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And so whenever the Israelites went out and they committed a city or a place to destruction, they gathered the belongings, the priests would take the coals from the altar, they would take them to that place and they would burn that place as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. You can see then some of the pictures that come out in Revelation chapter 8 and why those pictures are here. What is the angel doing when we get to verse 3 and verse 4? The prayers of the people are being burnt on the incense altar, and then the angel, it says, takes a censer, and he fills the censer with the coals, and he casts it down on the earth, doesn't he? Okay? Now, if you're wondering, what is a censer? If you've ever seen a, 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 high, a high church liturgical service, like in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the thing that the priests carry down the aisle, the chain, and it's got a metal bucket on it, and the incense is burning, and that's a censer, Okay? That's what you ought to be visualizing when you think of this. I, as I was preparing for the sermon this morning, I thought, I wonder if they realize they're carrying down the symbol of destruction, you know, through the aisle of the church. I don't know if, they, if that's the image they were going for, but um, nonetheless, here's what's happening in Revelation. So the angel takes the fires that have been cultivated from the, the prayers of the people, the coals that are burning, and he takes it and he, he fills the censer and he casts it down on the earth. And we see then the, the judgment that begins to be initiated in this chapter that is being cast down on the earth. And that's what's unfolding in this chapter. So let me just write that up here. As much as the seven seals are a picture of what God is doing in history to sanctify the people, the seven trumpets really are a picture of the judgment that God is bringing to bear on all of creation. And so we will see, as we, as we talk about this passage, we will see that the very same events that God uses to sanctify his people are some of the same events that God is using to bring judgment and destruction and condemnation on his enemies, those who have rebelled against him. That's what we'll see as we begin to look at this passage this morning. Here's how Eugene Peterson put it. While conflict raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire, massive engines of persecution and scorn were raged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige, but they did have prayer. That prayer had the power to shape the course of human history. You see the picture then that's being presented here. It is the prayers of the saints rising to God, being burned on the altar that initiate the judgment of God on the enemies of the living God who have persecuted the church 
most importantly at this time for the early church, and ongoing. We'll see these things throughout the course of history, okay? And so then the prayers of the saints are the very things depicted in chapter 8 that are moving the wheels of history. Prayers presented to God, and then God in His providence acting on behalf of His children, right? It's a beautiful picture and a frightening picture that is being presented in Revelation chapter 8. Here's the second picture that we need to pick up on as we think about Revelation chapter 8. It's the picture of Jericho. You, you might have, as you heard the passage being read this morning, you might have been thinking, well, that sounds a lot like what was happening at Jericho, right? Uh, to remind you or to refresh your memory, God is bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt. This is 1,400 years before Christ, okay? He's bringing them out of Egypt, and the Egyptians, namely Pharaoh, will not release the people to go and to worship the Lord. That's the important part of the Exodus. Moses is requesting they need to go to worship the living God, and Pharaoh says no, and so God gives Moses signs in the form of play. Uh, I got lost. I'm talking about Jericho. I'm not talking about the plagues. The plagues are later. Let me rewind. God is bringing the people out of Egypt. He's taking them into the promised land. There Jericho sits on the banks of the river. And Jericho is a representation of the people who have aligned themselves in rebellion to the living God. There we go. It's Jericho. Okay? And as God brings the people to the city, he tells them, listen, you're going to destroy the city, but you're going to do it my way. And here's my way. It's very simple. You will walk the whole people around the city six days. Okay? And in those six days, the seven priests with their seven horns are to blow their trumpets constantly. Okay? I don't know if you can imagine what that was like. It seems pretty frightening to me if I was in that city. Uh, the, the display that was going on around the city, but they would walk around it each day. The trumpets would be blown, and then the people would sleep. And then they would wake up the next day, they'd walk around the city seven times, and they, the, the priests would blow the trumpets constantly, and then they'd sleep. And they'd do that day after day. And on the seventh day, God told the people, when the, when the priests blow their trumpets, when the seven priests blow the seven trumpets, you are to raise your voices with them. And then he says in Joshua 6, this is what would happen, shout for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction, that the walls would come down, and you know the rest of the story. Now, if you've only ever heard the VeggieTales version of Jericho, uh, you're probably not grasping the gravity of what's being described here, right? I think if I remember correctly, they threw slushies off the wall. Is that right? Okay. That's, you know, it's good introduction to the Bible, um, but it's not what's being depicted here. What's happening in Jericho is a great, fearful condemnation and judgment of the peoples of the world. And this is the imagery that, that is now being picked up as we begin reading Revelation chapter 8. The pictures of the seven trumpets are not being blown by priests, they're now being blown by the angels. But each of them is blowing their trumpet as a symbolic picture of what was happening in Jericho, okay? So the trumpets were blown, the people raised their voices, and the city was destroyed. And now in Revelation chapter 8, as we unfold the trumpets of these seven angels, the trumpets will be blown and we will move towards the great destruction, okay? Now, some people and some very good commentators point most importantly to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, right? They say, here's the picture that's being illustrated. As Jericho was destroyed, now Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem, who have turned their backs on the living God, is being pictured here in the blowing of the trumpets, and God will surely destroy that city. And as a matter of fact, he does. 
uh, in 70 AD. You remember we talked about this, Vespasian and his army, they surround the city, they siege it, and then they destroy it. And it is, it is if you read about it in the first-hand accounts, the second-hand accounts, if you read about it, you will see that it was a, an utterly terrible destruction of the city of Jerusalem, okay? That maybe is partly in view. I think it's very possible, but I would also say I believe this vision is extending to all of the earth, okay? That there is, in fact, a template or a pattern that's being established whereby through the course of history, God is issuing these judgments and these destructions that are experienced by peoples and nations throughout the course of history that are pointing forward and culminating in the final destruction of the earth, okay? And you remember, we talked about this as the seals were being broken. We said in the book of Revelation, the description is very simple. The sun will be blackened, the moon will be made red, the mountains will be thrown into the sea, the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. It is a picture of the final, ultimate, perfect destruction by God of everything that is aligned against him, everything that is rebellious, everything that is evil, everything that is tainted by sin apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the second image that's being picked up on in Revelation is the city of Jericho that was destroyed by the people of God in obedience to the living God. Now we have the third picture, uh, the plagues in Egypt. I thought to simplify this one, I would just give you a, a table on your handout. This makes it easier than trying to explain, but I think you'll see the connections. This is more than just a coincidence. As we think about the trumpets that will be blown... They will go from chapter 8 into chapter 9. The seventh trumpet won't be blown till later. But as these trumpets are blown, you can think about this. Just like the seals, as they were broken, the, the horsemen, they ride forth as a picture of what's coming out of the seal. The trumpet will be blown, and then we see an unfolding of what that trumpet is depicting or presenting. So the first trumpet is blown in chapter 8, verse 7, and you see hail and fire come forth. Uh, there in Exodus, the seventh plague is the plague of, of hail and fire. So again, I'll remind you, I started to explain this earlier. I'll finish my explanation. God is taking the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and Pharaoh will not release them. And so God says, I will give you signs and wonders. They come in the form of plagues, okay? Now hold this question in your mind. Why doesn't God just do really nice signs and wonders? Why does he instead give plagues that are really hard and painful and bring suffering. Think about that question. We'll talk about it in a second. But these are the signs that God gives to Moses to give to Pharaoh that Pharaoh might know that God is real and that he commands his people to be released and to worship him. So there it is. The seventh plague in the book of Exodus is hail and fire. It corresponds with the first trumpet. The second trumpet in verses 8 through 9 is blood, and blood kind of fills the water and that is also the first plague. You remember that was the first thing that Moses did. His staff touched the water and it turned to blood. And the people were like, well, we can't drink this water. What are we going to do? Okay. That was the first plague. It's the second trumpet. The third trumpet in verses 10 through 11 is bitter water. I'm always, I always wonder in my mind, is that connected with the bloody water? Is the bloody water, bitter water, are they two connect? I don't know if they do. We don't really have a connection, you know, perfectly to the plagues in Egypt, but that's okay. The fourth trumpet will be blown and there will be darkness. And that's the, the ninth plague that happens in Egypt. The fifth trumpet, which we didn't read about this morning, is a, is a description of the locusts that come forth. And in chapter 9, they're, they're locusts, but they're also humans. They look like locusts, but they walk like humans. It's really, 
strange. If you want a creepy picture, you can read Revelation chapter 9. Uh, but there are the locusts, and that would be the eighth plague that happened in Egypt that God gave as a sign. The sixth trumpet is blown, and there's an army. It doesn't correspond so well with any of the plagues, but I will tell you, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt, who pursues them? It's the armies of Egypt. And I think there we get, you know, again, some pictures that are being drawn out as this trumpet is blown. The seventh trumpet is blown, and a storm issues forth. And the language in Revelation chapter 11 is almost identical to the, uh, the language in Revelation 19, uh, Exodus 19. When the people leave Egypt and they come to Mount Sinai, we see the storm on the mountain. It's the same exact language that is then used here at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And, and so you see that this is, this is not a coincidence. It's not as if we just got a lot of similar pictures. The vision that Jesus Christ gives to John is picking up on the imagery of the plagues that were happening in Egypt, right? And we see then some of the same ideas that are being drawn out because at the end of this chapter, the eagle that flies overhead says to John, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he points his attention to the next three trumpets that will be blown. He says, these judgments are great and they are severe and they will weigh heavy on the people, right? And so this is essentially the contours, again, or the topography of what's happening in the accounting of the seven trumpets, okay? As history is unfolding and we think about the trials and the challenges and the, the great sadnesses that, that take place in the course of history, they're being used not only for the sanctification of the people of God, but they're also being used by God as judgment and destruction on the peoples who have rebelled against him. As I've mentioned in prior weeks, there are two things happening in Revelation, at least two things. Well, that sounds very simplistic right now, but there are at least two things happening in the book of Revelation. God is saying that the unfolding of history is by his design, according to his providence, and these things, which might be viewed as challenging, terrible, hard things in the course of history, are used for making a people for himself and bringing judgment and destruction to bear on the peoples of the world. As Dennis Johnson says it in his commentary, the trumpet visions portray limited disasters and distresses in the midst of history, events that are bitter foretaste of the final unrestrained destruction of all opposition to God's reign at the end of the present world order. Now let me tell you, I think, this is the idea I want to leave you with and the idea that I think is most important as we read through the trumpets. There's a purpose for God's judgment, okay? Ultimately, at the end when God judges on the final day on Christ's return, it's a purification process where God will be glorified, okay? By extinguishing all sin and saving for himself a remnant of people. But in the meantime, the judgments and the destructions that we experience throughout the course of history are designed by God for a very important purpose, and we can't forget this as we talk about the seven trumpets. They're designed to produce repentance, okay? Repentance. Don't forget this. It doesn't quite come out in the eighth chapter, but it sure comes out in the ninth chapter. Listen to the end of chapter nine, beginning in verse 20, as we now hear a reflection on these the six trumpets that have already been blown. Revelation 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind 
who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts, okay? At the end of chapter 9, as the trumpets are unfolded, all the trumpets except for the seventh trumpet, we get this brief commentary about the purpose of God's judgments and destruction in this world, and we see the role that they play in producing repentance among the people. And that makes complete sense, doesn't it? Think about some of the ways that this is portrayed in Scripture. Think about Jonah when he goes to Nineveh, right? God says, go to Nineveh and proclaim judgment on them. And Jonah says, no, they're not going to listen. This is silly. And God says, you will go, Jonah. And he makes him to go. Jonah proclaims the judgment that awaits them. And the people of Nineveh, they repent, right? They look, at, they look at God's judgment and they can look at it in the course of history or they look at the unfolding of destruction in history and they say, well, wait a second, if this is a picture of what awaits us finally at the end, if we, if we don't turn from our wickedness, we must turn from it. And it, it produces that change in the heart of those people, Right? That's what God is doing in the course of history as he brings judgment and destruction to bear on kingdoms and nations and peoples, okay? And that makes complete sense with the pictures we've seen this morning. Think about Jericho. I like to think as the people are surrounding the city and they're marching around for six days, God has a lot that he's doing in the six days. Why does he have six days in the seventh? But I, I think one of the reasons that he does that is that the people in the city, as they're being marched around and the trumpets are being blown and destruction is being foretold that they're given the opportunity to repent, right? Like, wait a second, maybe we are going to be destroyed, or, or maybe there is something here, okay? And so they're given that opportunity to turn. Same, same with the plagues. Isn't that the case? Uh, God is uh, working through Moses to issue these plagues on Egypt, and he even says as much. As, as we read that passage, he says, deliver these plagues or deliver these signs to Egypt that they might know the Lord God has appeared to you. That, that, is the, that is the exact way to tell the Israelites and Moses specifically that your role in delivering these judgments, these condemnations, these very hard things for the people, that in delivering these things, your role is that as you deliver them, they might know that the Lord God is here. And in knowing that the Lord God is here, that they might turn from their wickedness, that they might repent and indeed turn to Him. I think that's why these three pictures are present here in the vision of the seven trumpets, the altar, Jericho, and the plagues, all pictures of destruction and of judgment that God will use in this world throughout the course of history to turn people in repentance to Him. I think, though, as the church then, this is my parting thought to you, I think as the church then, we've lost our ability and our courage to speak correctly about the judgment of God, okay? We've lost our courage and ability to speak correctly about the judgment of God. It's not a very popular thing in the church today to speak about God's judgment, is it? As a matter of fact, there are many people who call themselves Christians who don't even believe that there is any judgment of God. 
It's not a very popular thing to speak about judgment in today's church. You see, if we edit out all the judgment, if we're afraid to speak about whole cities that are devoted to destruction in the Old Testament, if we give in to the lie that Jesus doesn't speak about judgment, which he does, or to the lie that there is no wrath of God, which there is, then we forfeit one of the most important tools that God has given to turn people from their wickedness to the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. His judgment is real and it is powerful and it is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness as a testimony to the world that they might turn if the Spirit of God works in them. Richard Niebuhr, I think, put this best, and you might have heard this quote before. Richard Niebuhr said that the message of the church today is very simply this, a God without wrath brought me without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. You see the logical sequence. If we give up the sin, which so God, God so often speaks about in Scripture, then we give up the judgment and the wrath of God. And if we give up the judgment and the wrath of God, or if we act as though those things don't exist, then there's no need for a saving of a people. And if there's no need for a saving of a people, then the cross of Christ has no purpose. It has no meaning. It is all then empty and meaningless. The message of the seven trumpets that we will read about today and in the following few Sundays, the message of the seven trumpets is a message of judgment and destruction being unfolded in the course of history designed by God to point us forward to a future destruction that is awaiting all those who stand in wickedness and unrighteousness against the living God. We don't know when that final day comes, but we do know that the Lord God is preparing that day. And we do know the things that lead to God's judgment, the collective and persistent sinfulness of the people, the rejection of the Lord God, the insistence upon living as our own gods, and the perversion of the created order indulging the flesh. Look around you. These are the things that we see all around us. This is the world that we live in. We don't know when Christ is coming in judgment, but we do know that if those around us are not in Christ, they will be judged and condemned. They will be destroyed by the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb who comes in His wrath. And so this morning, as we think about the seven trumpets, the message is very important. It's the prophet's message. It's the same message that the book of Revelation has. It goes something like this, repent. Turn from your wickedness by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and being conformed by the Spirit of God, for there is no other way unto life. All other pathways lead to final, complete destruction. For the wages of sin is death, final death, complete death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life in Christ Jesus, and only Christ can save that's where judgment and condemnation leads us. If this message that has been given to us, first through the prophets and now through the book of Revelation, if this is a message that the church is faithful to preach and to proclaim, if we are not ashamed of it or scared of it, 
but rather we see it as God has designed it as a tool that leads under repentance, then we will faithfully proclaim this message. And the Spirit of God will work through the proclamation of judgment and condemnation that leads to life in Christ Jesus if by faith we trust in Him. This is the message of the seven trumpets. Would you please join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us and sent your son. We ask this morning that you would continue to meet here with us, that you would be at work by your spirit to open our eyes, that we would see more of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that you are righteous and holy and true and just, that in your presence no sin can remain, no wickedness can stand, all will be destroyed, all will be reconciled. We thank you that you, in your great patience, you wait for that final day until every son and daughter of the kingdom is brought in. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, and now by the blood of Christ Jesus, we have been reconciled and made right. We therefore have no fear, no condemnation, for we are adopted into your family and we are made right. And so we ask this morning that you would make us bold, make us bold sons and daughters to proclaim the message of sin and judgment and justice and condemnation and forgiveness through the blood of Christ and righteousness and reconciliation and justification and sanctification that only comes through the cross. May the whole counsel of God come forth from our lips, be shared with those around us, that your spirit might work to redeem your people. We love you and we thank you. It's in your name we ask all of this. Amen.